Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I think the Australian people don't want to see sort of uh, Trump light um, infect our politics. I think that's really concerning for anyone who's interested in the operation of our democracy and anyone who cares about how um, good government is done by our public servants working with ministers who are, in a real sense, accountable for the administration of their duties. I'm recording now too, so right to roll? Yep, I am. Hello, lovely people, and welcome to the show. You're with Catherine Murphy, the host of this pod and a political editor of Guardian Australia, and with me in Melbourne uh, this week, not lockdown Melbourne, Andrew. No, not lockdown at all at the moment, which I'm very glad. Yes, exactly. Uh, With me is Andrew Giles, uh, who is the Shadow Minister for Cities and Urban infrastructure. And uh, Andrew's on the show this week because, uh, well, there's lots to talk about in cities generally, but he was the parliamentarian who, uh, now I'm struggling for a word, summonsed up. (laughs) Help me out. Um, uh, Who wrote to the Auditor General um, suggesting that he look into the community car parks program. Yes, exactly. Sorry, summonsed up was way too grand. Andrew did write to the Auditor General uh, to uh, to request the recent audit uh, into the government's commuter car parks program. Uh, if you've missed that, and you you may have, because it's been very hectic over the last couple of weeks, and a lot of big news around. The sort of short version of it is it's a doozy. It's. Uh, I described it in a column uh, as Fifty Shades of Bad, uh, and and that's sort of anyway. We're going to unpack that in this conversation, um, and including what this program actually is. Uh, so let's uh, just start with the obvious question, Andrew. Why did you send this in the Auditor General's direction? What was it about it that grabbed your attention? Well, as as we sort of dusted ourselves off after the last election, um, it was clear that this was a program that really meant quite a bit during the election campaign, that the government invested a lot in it you know, financially. It's a $660 million program, and it was a big part of the bid for re-election of a number of their, their candidates. But 
as time passed, it became quite clear that there were big problems with this program that weren't just about my political view as to whether or not a particular project was a good project. It, was, it came to my attention that at least one project, one located in my electorate, the council knew nothing about and indeed it could never have been built because of the nature of the land. And the more I looked into it, the more I found issues like this. And we've seen already, I think, six of the 47 proposed projects have been cancelled, showing that there, were, there was something not right. Now, at the time, of course, all I had was the information I had to go on. What we've now seen is the Auditor-General's report. Well, We'll work through all that, but let's not assume the listeners are fully across this program. So why don't we just lay out, uh, obviously there was something called the, the Urban in, Urban Congestion Fund, which was the bigger umbrella program, and then there was the commuter car parks program that sat underneath that. Why don't you take people through what the program was intended to do? Sure. So about three years ago, the then Turnbull government, I think, uh, announced a, a program called the Urban Congestion Fund, you know, a, a good idea really, to ensure that national government's paying attention to real pinch points, pinch points for our economy, but pinch points in terms of people's lives, in terms of getting around our big and, and too often congested cities. Uh, in the lead up to the last election, that program was expanded dramatically. It became a $4.8 billion program. And a new element of that was something called the Commuter Car Parks Program. Now, this is a, has now become a $660 million project. Now, this was something that a national government hadn't been involved in uh, before, and, and that's one of the issues that, that the Auditor-General has touched upon. But what happened here was in a, a fairly short space of time, a decision was made to have this project. A decision was then made, and this is really the, where the story starts to, to get really, really bad, a decision was made that's quite extraordinary, and that was to not enable people to apply to be part of this grant-type program, but to only allow people within government, candidates, senators, members, to be the proponents, and even more concerningly, to not have any merit-based assessment of any of the particular proposals. So this was a $660 million fund that was only accessible by Liberal parliamentarians and in respect of which there was no metrics established. In fact, a conscious decision was made that there would be no metrics established to work out whether or not a project was a good project or a bad project. I guess the, the, the last point on this in terms of the design was the nature of this is this is work that's by and large done by state governments in partnerships with councils who often own the land. And I think they've proved to be very electorally popular by state governments, which is why this government no doubt became interested in them to shore up seats. Now, these projects by their very nature require cooperation with the other levels of government. And the one thing that, that really astonished me is that it seems that in none of these cases, in the 47 projects that were announced in the immediate lead into the last election, in none of these cases did anyone from the federal government pick up the phone and speak to someone in the state government, or sorry, in one case there was conversation with the New South Wales government, but in all the others there was no contact whatsoever and there was no contact in any of them with the councils who are often the people controlling the land. It's sort of intriguing because the audit uh, office sort of touches 
uh, it, it doesn't sit down there heavily, but it does touch on the internal conversation the government had when it was constituting the program, just to that point of these grants being uh, constituted through a non-competitive, non-application-based process. That's quoting the Auditor-General, right? Uh, they were all, which is just a, another way of saying they're all decisions of the government. Uh, the the Auditor-General references at one point an internal conversation within the government where Treasury was making the case that it needed to be a merit-based selection process for these grants, but infrastructure conveyed the view that I think infrastructure's point was an additionality point. They wanted to sort of have the government, you know, sort of assessing these programs or being the sole assessor and arbiter uh, because they felt or the argument that was put was that then they could determine that the Commonwealth wasn't funding projects that were going to happen anyway right? That was the sort of rationale that the department put. And in a bit, I'll ask you a bit more, you know, at, at a broader level, what's the rationale for these types of programs? But also uh, just uh, uh, we haven't really been clear, apart from me saying 50 Shades of Bad and this was a doozy and you saying that this is horrendous. Let's just tell the listeners, what did the Auditor-General say about this, uh, what had gone on in this program? Where did it land? Well, the Auditor-General has made six recommendations, some of which are a shocking that they needed to be made. But if we get to the story that leads to those recommendations, we find that there were these 47 projects. Now, not a single one of those projects was actually identified by the infrastructure department, the people who should have been doing that work. Now, almost all of these projects were announced by the Prime Minister the day before the government entered caretaker mode. Yes. Um, which is, uh, you know, quite... Uh, shocking, really. And if we go through the projects, we find that only two have actually been completed now, as we're into July 2021. We find that six have been abandoned by the government. We find that there are quite concerning cost overruns in the few that are actually underway. And we, we really see a complete breakdown of any sense of governance. And these are things that, that I think haven't perhaps been drawn out in, in the debate about this. But one of the things the Auditor-General has noted is that mm. the document record-keeping of the department was inadequate. Mm. And he doesn't just say it was inadequate here. He says they'd been caught out before for not keeping records as they are required to do um, and still failed in this circumstance. What we know here, though, is that there were spreadsheets being passed around from the Minister's office, the, the then Minister for, for Cities, um, Minister Tudge, um, the then Deputy Prime Minister, Michael McCormack, and the Prime Minister's office. Spreadsheets being passed around, several of them. We haven't seen them. We're obviously very keen to see them, which seem to be the real basis for decision-making. Now, there's no reference in this to any regard the department had for the two pieces of legislation that they are supposed to have regard for. There's no basis of any appropriate advice having been given to the ministers about the eligibility or otherwise of projects to have been constructed. Because one of the things that just um, almost, you know, 
uh, was a, was another a fifty first shade of bad was finding out that ten of these forty seven <laughs> projects are actually nowhere near train stations, <laughs> which is pretty remarkable for a commuter car park project. Now, at least one of them wasn't eligible to be funded, and the criteria for funding under the Act are, are a well understood and b pretty broad. Actually, I think uh, your colleague Paul Carp has reported that some legal experts have suggested there may actually be doubt over whether or not other projects could have been funded. And, uh, you know, these, these are really concerning issues which the Auditor-General has highlighted and which require much, much closer examination because as we're having this conversation, the Prime Minister has not said a word about this despite this going straight to his door and involving his office as well. And Minister Tudge has said nothing about it, despite the fact that it seems that he was the person behind almost all of the recommendations to the extent the Prime Minister wasn't. So we haven't heard any response from the government apart from two bizarre arguments which have been advanced. The first one is actually announcements made before the caretaker period commenced are actually election announcements, which is quite astonishing. And the fact that the department seems to be going along with it is, is something that, you know, I'm, I'm very concerned about as a citizen as well as a politician. And secondly, from, from both Minister Fletcher and, and the, the finance minister on insiders, well, they just seem to want to shrug this off and say, well, we won the election, so, so bad luck, guys. And uh, that's something that I'm more troubled about really than anything else because Presumably they've read this report. Um, the, the both ministers responsible would have had the opportunity to, to um, see drafts and be part of a conversation about it. And they seem entirely uninterested in learning from it or, or even being accountable for it. And as, as you've spoken about, one of the real benefits of the pandemic to our society has been this upturn, this turnaround in people's confidence in our democracy and our democratic institutions. And we've seen a government that's been prepared, perhaps reluctantly, to listen to the experts. And certainly we've seen that from state and territory governments too. Here we have a government that is only interested in the voices of its own members and is uninterested in its obligations to the people. And having been caught out, is determined to just brazen its way out of here. And I think that's really concerning for anyone who's interested in the operation of our democracy and anyone who cares about how um, good government is done by our public servants working with ministers who are, in a real sense, accountable for the administration mm. of their duties. Yeah, it's sort of interesting, isn't it? Those broader points you make about accountability and the age we live in are really compelling. But you referenced it a minute ago in the sort of call of the board. <laughs> there is in this one of the sort of subtexts or sub-arguments in the Auditor-General's report is this argument between the department and itself about whether or not the projects were election commitments or whether or not they happened in the normal course of events. And as you say, the infrastructure department seems to be suggesting in its response to the audit office that commitments that a government makes prior to caretaker taking effect are election commitments, which is sort of, well, I, I have no words for that. <laughs> It's just, what is that? I mean, that is that is crazy. Yeah. And the point of this, just if we're too in the weeds, guys, a quick point of translation is that 
obviously once elections happen, governments and oppositions make a bunch of commitments. They they lay down, you know, X million for this thing. I mean, that's a crude summation, but you get our drift. And so during elections, governments or alternative governments make commitments. And then after the election is held, a government is sworn in and everybody cleans up the details, as it were, and sets about implementing the commitments that are made during an election cycle. During a cycle of government, There's supposed to be whole processes around how decisions come to be and how commitments, financial commitments are made. And in essence, in this program that we're talking about, the infrastructure department says, oh, well, words to the effect of, oh, we didn't really need to keep those records or do those things because they're election commitments. Well, uh, the bulk of them were actually made before the caretaker convention took effect. So anyway, it's just, it's one of the many head scratching elements of this report. And Andrew did touch on it, but I just wanted to sort of translate that slightly. If you don't speak government or you're not across exactly how these things work. Now, I want to come back to our non-competitive, non-application based process. <laughs> Basically, a grants program of of uh, many millions over which government appoints itself to have sole discretion, that there's not even a pretense of a merit-based process. What's the case for those sort of programs, Andrew? I think if you're suggesting that there can be a case for a grants process where there's no merits-based process mm. that's to be considered, I think there's no case for that. I think there is a case for government to have competitive grants processes, particularly for some of the smaller scale things that national governments support. But they've got to be genuine processes and we've got to be able to see how decisions are made and and how they are implemented. And one of the things that, that is really, to me, scary about this is we've obviously seen the sports rorts example where the rort was exposed because it was shown that so many applicants with high scores had been overlooked in terms of applicants with lower scores without any any rationale given. Now, here, they seem to have got around that problem by removing any basis of consideration for, for people like you and for people like me and the Australian public to have regard to. And that's that's really, really concerning uh, that... that a project, you know, a program for two-thirds of a billion dollars. And indeed, the Auditor-General makes some comments which suggest that the entire Urban Congestion Fund may mm. have some uh, similar characteristics across it, and that's something that we are really keen to, to get to the bottom of as well. But, yeah, this suggestion that large sums of public money can be expended without any basis, any objective consideration whatsoever is deeply concerning. And it's one of the reasons, as well as the 87% of the funds going to either Liberal held seats or target seats, which leads us to be of the view that, that this is treating public monies as if they are Liberal Party funds. What about, I suppose, I'll, I'll just be devil's advocate here, and you referenced a point the finance minister made in a recent television interview, which was uh, you, you, I think, summarised as tough luck we won, which is a fair summary of what he said. But I think what he was trying to say was the people elect politicians, we are accountable to the people, we should be licensed to make decisions. If you don't like the decisions we make, 
well, you can vote us out. Now, I, I think, look, I, I'm not in Simon Birmingham's mind and I'm not trying to uh, create a justification for what he said, but that's what I think he meant, right? So it's sort of tricky, isn't it? Because, I mean, I, you are obviously the bit of the democratic process that people can sack, right? People can't come in and sack the infrastructure department. They can come in and sack you in the event that they're displeased with your decision-making. So there is a genuine complexity here about about the balance between elected decision-makers being able to make decisions and processes that protect the integrity of those decisions and also taxpayer interests, right? So I'm not... Even though I, I'm sort of tempted to just yep. put my hands on my hips and just shout into the wind uh, that all this must <laughs> end, I, I want to. This is me, in a way, acknowledging that there are complexities here. Yeah. But at the same time, though, if I can sort of address your point, which is that look, programs over where, uh, where there is complete discretion by politicians to just determine merit, right, shouldn't happen. Grants programs just like that shouldn't happen. We should have grants pro- programs uh, around which there are proper probity uh, mechanisms and some transparency and a mm. merit-based selection process, right? But isn't the problem that we've reached a point, and you sort of touched on it, where there, there is this sort of immunity to embarrassment on the part of, of parliamentarians. You've made the point, yeah. and sorry, I don't mean all sides here. I, I acknowledge that the Labor Party is proposing an integrity commission, whereas the government is dragging its heels on it. Labor has pointed to its record in government, you know, to sort of make the case, oh, well, we won't be brazen like that. Although, of course, Labor has presided over grants programs where political outcomes have determined decisions, right? So I'm not not trying to all sides it here and muddy it up, but but I am, though, as as a commentator and a reporter sitting outside this process, what I can say with absolute certainty is that we have reached a point where there is this sort of immunity to embarrassment, that even if you have a program like the sports grants program, which has a sort of you know, at least on paper, a merit-based selection process, when the Auditor-General comes out and says, oh, actually, well, that was all skewed for, you know, political purposes, it's kind of like, uh, what happens? Well, <laughs> nothing happens. So it's, it, it, uh, sorry, I'm not being very articulate here, but it's sort of, no. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying you're making, to... You're making a really important point and, and uh, it's, it's a big one and I'm not sure if we'll get to the bottom of it over the course of this conversation. But, but I guess I think it is important to stress a couple of things. Firstly, when we were in government, Anthony Albanese introduced Infrastructure Australia at a very high level to deal with exactly this issue to put in place a mechanism that saw productive infrastructure investment delivered through an independent voice. We also have supported and continue to fight for an anti-corruption commission, which I think is now more important than ever. And and what I'd say from that is, is, is maybe, well, two things. Firstly, there are really two decisions that politicians make here. There's the decision to support a particular project, which I think was what you were going to, but there's the decision to support the process and, 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 and I think that's the one that, you know, Simon Birmingham and others slide away from because they've made two sets of decisions. Both of them are bad. 
and they should be accountable for both, not just the decision to support a car park where there could never have been one, but the decision that was made to put in place a program to effectively use public money for the benefit only of a political party. But on on the shame point, I guess I've got a, a different take on this. I think the Australian people don't want to see sort of uh, Trump light um, infect our politics. I think we've seen from Australians a desire to have political leaders listen carefully to expert advice, then obviously to make decisions for which they should be accountable. And, and I've felt a great sense of frustration in my constituents and other members of the public who've contacted me about this process because it is the exact opposite of the direction that people want our politics to go and indeed the opposite of what people have seen through most of the pandemic response. Yes, I guess I agree. There is this gap between community sentiment, which would like governments to be focused on their interests, focused on providing solutions or examples like what we see in this commuter car park car crash, sorry to mix our metaphors, I agree. Those two things, they seem to coexist, but but there, there doesn't seem to be a convergence between those two points in a strange way. Sorry, I'm not, I'm sort of, uh, you know, at risk of full tilt nihilism in a minute. I'll calm down, but it's sort of like that there is this sort of gap in expectations between what the community might expect and how people are behaving. And it's not uh, through, look, we've just had a whole conversation mm. on the Auditor General's report and, and we've reported on it and you guys have, you know, put a megaphone around it and all of that sort of stuff. And look, I don't know, maybe some people out in the community will shift their votes as a consequence of it. Perhaps they will. But, yeah, I don't know. I just, I just find the whole thing confounding that where there is objective evidence of things not working as they should... And that is called out, but yet there seems to be this immunity to embarrassment in a strange way. I just, this doesn't compute in my tiny brain. It just makes my brain explode. Well, I like to think we're seeing some embarrassment evidenced in the fact that neither the Prime Minister nor the Minister responsible have fronted the media in, in the week and two days, I think, since this report came out. They're not up for defending it, and I think it's because it can't be defended. Now, I'm hopeful that whenever the Prime Minister emerges, that he will be asked tough questions by you and your colleagues about this, about what happened, what he proposed to do about it, and fundamentally about his role, because obviously he's got a bit of form about decision-making by spreadsheet. Let's just have a chat. I mean, it's sort of ridiculous to open this conversation because we're not going to have time to do it properly. But uh, I do want to ask you, though, Beyond, I want to take us away from the Auditor General's report for a minute. Uh, you, you mentioned the pandemic and the impact that's had on politics a minute ago. Uh, the pandemics also had a massive impact on cities and how we think about cities in the future and how cities may be configured in the future. I don't know, perhaps after the vaccines are rolled out and we, we sort of slide into COVID normal, whatever that ends up looking like, Perhaps we will just all revert to old habits and it'll be like, in a strange way, this never happened. But it feels to me like that there are already shifts on and and they're profound and they're interesting. And 
you're a guy who thinks a lot about policy. So where do you see this whole debate about cities going sort of in the, well, we're not, I sort of object to saying post-pandemic because Mm. we're not post-pandemic, we're still absolutely in it, but you know what I mean? Like, where is this going? Yeah, well, look, I think it's almost the most exciting public policy debate in Australia and probably around the world at the moment. We're living in the urban century. People moving to cities around the world has been the phenomenon of, of the last, well, long period, but particularly now in the developing world. And in Australia, we are the most urban and the most suburban country in the world if you cut out the city-states. So how our cities work is a pretty big deal to how our economy works and how people live their lives and, and also about how sustainable our footprint is. And obviously the pandemic has massively changed how particularly our big cities work. And that, that raises some, some really big questions and, and I don't pretend to have all the answers to them. But I think if we don't start having the conversation, it's unlikely that we're going to emerge from the pandemic in the position we want to be in as, a, you know, as an economy which in very large part is, is driven by service sector knowledge industries which tend to be located in the centre of big cities. Now, the centre of big cities are also the biggest employers in our country. I think in the 10 years to the year before last, about half the jobs, the new jobs generated in Australia were located within a couple of k's of the Melbourne and Sydney CBDs, Grattan tells us. So getting our central cities working properly is one of the big public policy challenges of our time for anyone who cares about jobs and for anyone who cares about productivity growth and Anyone who who paid the slightest bit of attention to the intergenerational report last year will be very focused on the productivity bit of the equation. So I think the challenge for a national government is to actually think about what has been happening to get central cities moving elsewhere in the world, to think about what the future of work looks like and to think about how government at every level can work together with businesses, the major employers there, and the secondary businesses, which are the ones which seem to be losing out at the moment, your cafe, your dry cleaner, to try and reimagine our city centres in a world where there's a bit more dispersal of knowledge work and to also reimagine the infrastructure needs to facilitate the dispersed bit of work, um, forming some, some good clusters, some good hubs where people can do more of their work close to home and generate some of those spin-off activities around, again, the cafe-type businesses. Uh, That's a challenge which governments elsewhere in the world seem to be really leaning in on, and we're seeing some fantastic stuff being done by our local governments. But we've got a national government that hasn't even bothered to get a Zoom going with its own cities reference group since before any of us had heard of COVID, Catherine. (laughs) Well, you can tell there's a whole podcast in this and I think I'll invite Andrew back at another point. We might thrash this one out more than we've had an opportunity to do today. Thank you, Andrew, for uh, taking us through the Auditor-General report and for teasing the audience with a conversation about cities that'll be fun to have at a certain point in time. Uh, Thank you to my executive producer, Miles Martignoni. Thank you to Jane Lee, who's cutting the show today. Thank you guys for listening and sharing and all of that jazz. We'll be back next week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. 
Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.